Welcome, welcome, welcome to the 20th installment of the Phenotype Speaker Series. I'm your host, Kira Deneen. My pronouns are she, her, and we are celebrating Pride Month. So very excited. We're going to be diving into gender-affirming care in genetic counseling. So thank you so much for joining us. It is lovely to have you tuning in to the 20th installment. Um, and we just hit two years of doing the Phenotype Speaker Series, which means COVID has been happening for two years. Uh, so to give everybody an outline of what today is going to look like, I'm going to be interviewing our lovely panelists today, and we're going to do an audience Q&A at the end. But as you think of questions, I want you to submit them in the Q&A box if you're listening to this and tuning in on Zoom, because I don't want you to forget your questions. So as you're you know, attending this and listening and having so many thoughts and reactions, I want you to be able to submit those questions as we go. Um, so definitely do that. I will remind you throughout the webinar as well. And Phenotips is our sponsor for this series. So Phenotips is a complete solution for medical genetics. Phenotips offers software and services that ease genetic professionals workflow. They offer tools like pedigree builders, human phenotype capture and diagnostic insights. As many of us know in the genetics field, electronic health records are not built for genetics. We've all had issues with them at some point in some rotation and some job. So what Phenotips does is they fill in the gaps by providing a unified and seamless genetics workflow. And as I mentioned, in light of the pandemic, that's how this Phenotips speaker series started so that we could really come together of uh, being genetic professionals throughout the world and talk about really important topics in our profession. So as I mentioned, I'm your host, Kira Deneen. I am also the host of DNA Today, which is a genetics podcast. So we have won the People's Choice Podcast Awards for the last two years for the best 2020 and 2021 Science and Medicine Podcast Award, um, which we are just super stoked about. We've had over 185 episodes in the last decade, and conversations are very similar to the one that we're having today. Um, this is actually going to be released on DNA Today's feed as well. My other role is as a prenatal genetic counselor, so I think that's certainly going to come up a lot today. Me and Marnie are going to be sharing some of our expertise being in the prenatal realm, um, and also wanted to mention, because it's relevant, that I am part of the LGBTQIA community as a queer individual. Um, so now I would love for our panelists to introduce themselves, tell us a little bit about your background and what perspective you're bringing onto the webinar today. So Holden, I'd love for you to kick it off. Thanks so much, Kira. Um, so my name is Holden. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, his. I am transgender and I am an actor, singer, educator, and social worker who also sometimes works in the advocacy realm. Awesome. And Joanne, can you introduce yourself? Yes. Um, my name is Joanna. I use she, her, AO pronouns. I am a board certified genetic counselor specializing in hereditary cancer syndromes at Geno Medical. Um, and I am an advocate for work related to diversity and inclusion. Thank you. Fantastic. And Marnie. Hi, my name is Marnie Brillinger. I'm primarily a prenatal preconception genetic counselor. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, like Kira, I am part of the LGBTQIA plus community, but I am a cisgender person. Fantastic. So I figured the way we could kick off our conversation is by defining some terminology before we start exploring gender affirmation, 
especially in genetic counseling, as that's our focus today. Um, so I think it's all good for us to be on the same page and educate people that may not be as familiar with all of this. Um, so I think the first question that certainly comes up a lot in prenatal um, is what the difference is between gender and sex, because there is a difference. Anybody want to start our conversation? I, I'll start it from the prenatal genetic counselor realm because it's a very, very common thing to hear from patients. Will this test tell me the gender of my fetus? Nope, a fetus doesn't have a gender. Like gender, gender is a psychological construct. A fetus doesn't have one of those. Um, sex is determined by a number of different biological characteristics, whereas gender is determined by both psychology and society. And I think part of the gender conversation too is talking about the gender binary and within that, what it means to be non-binary. Um, does anyone wanna to speak to a little bit in terms of that topic? Yeah, I'll take that one. Um, so the gender binary is what we think of traditionally uh, as male and female, either one or the other. Um, people who are non-binary, mean it means that they uh, identify outside of just male or just female. It may mean that they identify as both male and Wow, I can't speak today. It may it's early for Holden. We're going to give you a pass on me. Thank you for that, Kira. Um, no, it may mean they identify as just male or just female and non-binary. It may mean that they identify as both male and female. It may mean that they identify either in between or outside of that binary entirely. Um, and so many non-binary people also consider themselves transgender. Some don't. In my personal experience, the majority of non-binary people I know consider themselves transgender. But I also have come across some folks who are like, I reject gender entirely. I am just non-binary. And I think it's important too, as we talk about this, as you know, we all shared our pronouns as we introduce ourselves, which I think is just a great way when you're meeting someone just to mention that um, and put it out there. But for people that are not familiar with this, what are pronouns? Why is it important to use someone's correct pronouns? Um, I'll take this one. <laughs> um, I always say that it, it's terms or words that a person wants to be identified as when referred to like in third person. Um, as a genetics provider, I try to make it my standard of care to ask my patients what their pronouns are, just because I think it's important to realize what they want to be identified and recognized as. And straying away from the term preferred, meaning that it's like a suggestion of what someone may want to be identified as versus affirming what they want to be. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. I've definitely seen that written on forms, even when I'm a patient elsewhere, like preferred pronouns. I'm like, no, it's not preferred. Like these are my pronouns. Um, so I think it is very important that we do steer away from that term preferred pronouns. Like it's just your pronouns. <laughs> um, and, you know, sometimes as we're talking, we may use the wrong pronoun and it does happen. Um, what is advice for how to move forward, how to acknowledge that, how to navigate that in a conversation when you do use a wrong pronoun and you do want to address that. So I'm going to jump in on this one because when I saw that question, I, I laughed a little bit and I was like, well, you say, I'm sorry, you correct yourself and you move on and you get it right next time. 
right? You don't, for, for people who are cisgendered particularly, what you don't want to do in that moment is make the moment about you right? Don't explain, don't give a long thing like, oh, I've known you since you were this old or, oh, I thought that. No, like just apologize, correct yourself and get it right next time. Yeah, Marnie's exactly right. Um, I definitely, that's my preference for sure. And the apology should be short and sweet. If it's like, she, sorry, he, continue your conversation. It really doesn't have to be dwelled upon. And I think the biggest thing to note that Marnie mentioned is about, um, you know, making it about you. I think the biggest thing that I've seen happen is people want, when they say, I'm sorry, it's natural for us to be wanting to hear, oh, it's okay. And it isn't okay. And so the best way to avoid having a trans person tell you it's okay is to not make a big deal about your apology. Just keep going with it. Sorry, use the correct pronoun and continue so that you don't have that awkward pause where the person is supposed to say, oh, it's fine because it's like, all right, we all mess up. We're human, acknowledge it, move on, done. Um, so I think that's uh, definitely good advice for genetic counselors and other providers and just people in general, right? Um, another topic that we think about, you know, when it comes to terminology would be microaggressions. So what might, what is a microaggression, first of all, to define that? And what might a microaggression look like when used towards trans people of what we should be aware of on the lookout for? I'm going to, I'm going to dive in on this one again. Sorry, folks. I talk a lot. I talk a lot. That's um, good. You're a panelist. You're supposed to. Right. <laughs> um, one of the best definitions I ever heard of a microaggression is imagine your biggest pet peeve but make it systemic. Like you're always driving behind that car that's really slow. Or, you know, somebody there, if there's a word you don't like to hear, somebody is always using that word. Like, yeah, it's a little thing, but it's there and it's there and it's there and it keeps on happening. And just to add, like sometimes the person doesn't know that it's, it can be an intentional or unintentional of them using a microaggression and, but they're just may not be aware that it, it can be insensitive too. And I think with that as well, the majority of microaggressions I've experienced have been from really well-meaning people. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of the time things, for example, like, oh, you're trans, I, I would never have known. Like, I couldn't even tell. It's like, that's not a compliment actually. Um, and it's, it's actually kind of a dig, um, but I understand why you would think that that is, you know, what I'm going for. Uh, but at the same time, it's not exactly a compliment. And in fact, it's kind of, you know, negating part of my identity um, right in front of my face. So it, it's little things like that where you may, it's sometimes better to be quiet than to uh, share what you're thinking. I'll just add um, that preparatory to this, um, I asked a number of these questions of my friends and loved ones who are trans and non-binary. Um, and one of the things that consistently came up in healthcare appointments was the word whatever. For example, I use they, them pronouns. Oh, okay, whatever. And the healthcare provider might be meaning that to say like, oh, sure, 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 fine. But it's very dismissive. So that was an interesting thing that came up that, that a number of people said happen in a medical setting with some regularity. Yeah, I think that's definitely one that I've, I've seen myself as well um, of, you know, it sounds like, you know, maybe the person, as you're saying, is, is trying to make it seem like casual, great, awesome. 
but very, very dismissive. If you're some, you know, you're like, these are my pronouns. You're not really acknowledging that when you say whatever you're brushing it off. Um, so I think that that's a really good point there. Um, and as we continue to define some terms, I think another one is what gender dysphoria is, because I think this is something that has definitely changed over the years in terms of looking at, you know, certainly holding from your perspective, also being in social work, my mom's a social worker. So I grew up like knowing what the DSM is and everything. Right. So I think with that, so much has changed with the DSM in, in the last few decades. Um, and I think this is one that I think of in terms of dysphoria. Um, so I would love for someone to, you know, give us a little explanation on what gender dysphoria is. Yeah, I'll, I'll speak to those a little bit from the more diagnostic side um, and my social worker brain. And then I'll also talk about it more from my personal experience as a trans person. Um, so we'll start with the social worker side. Um, gender dysphoria as a diagnosis is a diagnostic title code uh, that is used to provide services effectively. Um, it is considered a mental disorder according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. For my trans side, I'll talk about whether or not that should be the case in a moment. Um, but basically it's mostly used for, first of all, like therapy, it can be used as a code for therapy, but also it is the diagnostic code that's most significant when trans people are trying to get uh, gender affirming healthcare, medical care. Um, so whether that's hormone replacement therapy slash like affirming hormones, um, surgeries, et cetera, that is usually what gets that covered by insurance. Now, not every insurance will cover it. Some states have laws that help out uh, to make insurance cover it, but uh, that is the, usually the code used because if it's not a healthcare issue, it's not gonna be covered by health insurance, right? And that's that's the big difficult part about what I'm about to say, which is that whether or not it should be considered a mental disorder is heavily contested within the community. Um, and on my end, I think, you know, for as long as we have our current healthcare system, if you wanna bill it to health insurance, it's gotta be a health issue. Um, but at the same time, many people compare it to pathologizing queerness in other ways. And, you know, being gay used to be a disorder in the DSM as well. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it becomes increasingly complex. What gender dysphoria means for most trans people uh, is significant distress around how their gender and sex do not line up, whether it's secondary sex characteristics, um, any kind of, maybe even just the way that they dress, the way that their voice sounds, and it makes them feel, the way that I best heard it described, and I've described it this way as well since hearing it, was that like, you're wearing a shirt that's just a little bit too tight all the time. Um, I've never heard that, I, I like that analogy. Yeah, and it, it, really, it, it really does feel that way. Um, some people believe that you need gender dysphoria to be trans, uh, others believe that you don't need gender dysphoria, but you do need to feel more content uh, when you are presenting as you would like and being referred to as you'd like. So uh, for a long time, I was I'm totally ignorant in that realm. And when I was first coming out, I thought like, why would anyone without dysphoria ever be out as a trans person? Like it is so hard to be trans if it wasn't like you know, making my life so much harder, like internally with the dysphoria, I probably wouldn't have done anything about it. And then as I became more and more involved in the community, I learned about just the amount of sheer joy and euphoria that can come for some people. And like the fact that we should not be, you know, giving people identities based on where their pain lies and rather like where they feel most themselves. Yeah, certainly very layered. And I hear what you're saying with, okay, healthcare wise, what box are we signing off? What code are we using? Because that's how insurance is run. But then it's like, you know, 
it, it feels a little icky to be categorizing it that way. Just like how you said, like being gay, queer, lesbian, whatever the term is that we're using, that used to be in the DSM. That's no longer there, right? I think I'm getting that right. Okay. <laughs> um, so I, I definitely see how it's it's very complex. And, and our healthcare system, there's many issues with it. I would say this is this is on the list. Um, so I, I think that's just so, so great to hear from your perspective on, on both sides, just you as, as a person and also you working, you know, in the social work field and everything. Um, so and another, has, go oh, ahead. Hold on. I just wanted to add one more thing. There has been progress too in that though. It, like it used to be called gender identity disorder. And then when the DSM-5 came out, they just came out with a revision, but the first edition of the DSM-5, they switched it to gender dysphoria. And I that's think right. the framing well, far from perfect is, you know, super helpful to say, like, it's not a disorder of identity. It's just a disorder of distress. Um, and that is helpful as well. Yeah, certainly. It's it's good to see when we are updating terminology as, as we're improving it. We're, you know, nothing's perfect, I think, but it is nice to see that things are going in the right direction, at least with that. Um, another term I wanted to define is what is a dead name? Um, and how can we ask patients politely for this name in case there's medical records that we need to access that may be under their dead name? Oh, okay. Oh, ahead, oh sorry. Go, no, no, no. It's okay. You, you, you started off. Okay. I'll, I'll just make it short and sweet. Um, a, a dead name, dead name is a phrase that a lot of trans people use to refer to the name that they were given when they were born or they, that was used for them, um, before their transition. For some people, it's not a dead name. There's a, there are some people who are like, no, it's not a dead name. It's just the past, like, and it's not offensive, whatever. And for others, um, use of the word dead name is very, very accurate. Um, I personally use birth name a lot of the time, even though I do not use that name in any circumstances anymore, um, just because it, for me, it has to do with, you know, like a tip of the hat to my parents a little bit. Um, but, uh, Typically, it means, you know, like something that the trans person used before their current name. Um, and uh, the best way to ask for patients politely is to just say, you know, any name, uh, any other records may have, might have been under. Um, because it's also helpful just to have that if you have people who got married or like yes. are from their families and want to change their name. Like there are a million reasons besides being trans why that's a helpful question. Um, and it actually has nothing to do with the person being trans. But there's also, to, just for clarification, there are two different scenarios here where dead name, dead name might be uh, applicable. One is whether it's, their still, it's still their legal name, so for insurance and billing purposes. And the other is if it's no longer their legal name, but you still need to access old records, et cetera. Because like your social security number stays the same. Like effectively things should be tied together, but we all know that systems aren't always that great at doing that, right? I've definitely had multiple files open at a doctor's office before. Um, so just something to note that like there's utility in asking the question in general. And I'll pass it off to Marnie, Joanna, if, if y'all wanna take it from there in terms of the medical side. Yeah, what I was thinking of in terms of how to ask, what I frequently will ask patients is, is this the name, <clears throat> like this name, this name that we're using, is this the name that your doctor's office and insurance company knows you under, or do they have you listed under a different name as well? And I, because I deal with a lot of reporting as well, I'll frequently ask the person, is it okay that your result is under that name? 
or would you like me to contact your doctor's office and see if we can get it switched? Because I found that sometimes it can be very dysphoria inducing for them to get a copy of their report with their dead name on it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point in that we do need to keep track of, okay, what does the insurance, like what name the insurance has? And, you know, as Marnie brought up, we can tell the labs, the insurance is under this name, but the patient's name is, and this is what we would like to have on the report. Um, so, you know, I think all genetic counselors have their contact, their labs, their person, right. Their salesperson, um, whoever. So it's so great to be able to just shoot them an email and be like, Hey, heads up, I'm sending the sample in. This is the information. Um, and I, I find that to be very helpful. And I think labs, you know, my experience, which, you know, is only a couple of years, <laughs> but so far my experience has, has been good with labs responding to that, um, and anything else before I move on to the next question? Cause we definitely had good, good points all brought up here. All right. Um, so I think another thing that we've been talking about um, is, you know, gender inclusive, gender affirming, but there is a difference between these terms. Um, what is that difference? Just so that we can understand where we are in terms of these terms. I can take it. I just wanted to join. I wasn't sure if you wanted to hop in since you haven't had a chance in a little bit, but I want to make sure that you get to talk to. Um, uh, so the big difference is one is passive and one is active, right? Um, it's really easy to be inclusive, quote unquote. Uh, you know, you just are like really broad with your language maybe, and you are respectful of everyone. That's a big one that I've heard lately is first we're, oh, we respect all identities. Right. It's like that's that's cool. That's very bare minimum. Being affirming is to go is just it takes the extra step of saying, how am I going to make a trans person feel good about being trans in my space? Right. It's not just, you know, generally including them or not, you know, ostracizing them, but specifically making it an especially welcome space, welcoming space for trans people um, and gender nonconforming people. So that's a big, you know differentiation that needs to be made because there are plenty of places where they consider themselves, oh yeah, we're super inclusive here, right? And being inclusive doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a comfortable experience. Um, like one example is oftentimes people will start using they, them pronouns for all people who they don't know the gender of who come into their office. And I understand where that comes from, right? They're like, oh, we don't want to assume gender, but then they're really only doing that for people who look trans to them. Um, and so like when people use they, them pronouns for me, and I've already told them my pronouns are he, him, huge pet peeve. I'm like, I went for so many years without being called he, him. Like, I think it's about time people start using that all the time for me. Um, and they, them, it's just, they're not my pronouns. Like they're great until you know someone's pronouns, but now you do. Um, so that's like a big thing, right? One is like passive and you say, oh, you know, we just do things a certain way here. That's like inclusive generally. The other is going out of your way to create a space that affirms trans people. The biggest that I'll describe is uh, my gynecologist refers to all her trans guy patients as her men, um, which is like the first time I heard her say that my face lit up because in a gynecological office, like it's really, really hard to be a trans person. And that may be 50,000 times more comfortable, just a little remark, right? So it's, it's the difference of having a general policy of inclusivity versus going out of one's way to have to make sure that trans people have a positive experience with you. 
such a good explanation. I feel like we need to just take that clip and put it all over social media. Um, hint, hint for people editing this. Um, but yeah, it, it's like gender inclusive is like step one. And that, you know, it's like, okay, everybody should be there. And like, we need to be taking that step two to be gender affirming. Um, and you also um, brought up like, you can use they, them until someone tells you your pronouns. And I've certainly done that with patients. Holden and I did um, a few months ago, we went through and did like a mock genetic counseling session. And that's something that I do with patients. And I think we ended up debriefing after of like, you know, I, I use they or their, that name. So if we have John and Jane or something like that, I'll say, oh, like how old is John? And then the patient will usually be like, he or she is this age. And then I'm like, unlocked the pronoun. And then I'm like, okay, now I know what pronoun to use going forward. Um, so just using people's names until they say something. Also, I feel like tends to be a natural way of it happening in the conversation too. Um, so yeah, great points. Um, and Holden, you also mentioned a little bit earlier some gender affirming therapies that are available to people. Can you give us a little bit bigger of an explanation in terms of what those therapies are and a little bit of background on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there are plenty of different gender affirming therapies and gender affirming healthcare um, options. And for every trans person, that's going to be different as to what they want. Um, so for example, I had top surgery, I didn't, which is uh, a double mastectomy. I do not plan to have bottom surgery, which is a phalloplasty or netoidoplasty. I can never pronounce that one right, but there are a few different options basically like to create a penis um, with whatever one has. Um, so there's a million different ways that a trans person might want to or not want to have surgeries or hormone therapies. But the biggest ones that people use are uh, testosterone for uh, transmasculine folks um, and estrogen slash estradiol and spironolactone uh, for trans feminine folks. And then there's also all kinds of surgeries that to modify one's body um, to reflect one's gender more accurately. So whether that's taking away breasts, putting on breasts, more vagina, less vagina, more vulva, less vulva. There's a million different options, tracheal shaves for some folks who have Adam's apples who don't want that to be seen. Um, facial feminization or masculinization, body contouring, just like switching around some fat just to make things look a little bit more one way or the other. Um, there's kind of endless possibilities, the majority of which are done by plastic surgeons, but then there are some uh, that involve also urologists and other specialists. Um, but basically every single trans person is gonna have a different set of wants for themselves. Some might want every single surgery possible, uh, some might want no surgeries and it doesn't change their identity necessarily. It's just about what helps them feel most affirmed and most gender euphoric in themselves. Very personalized there. Go ahead, Marnie. I'm going to add on looping back to the topic of microaggressions, um, unless it is medically relevant to the topic at hand, or you are in an intimate relationship with that person, it's really not okay to ask if they've had bottom surgery or top surgery, like that is not information that you should just be asking somebody who is trans or non-binary, but it is unfortunately something that a lot of people who are trans or non-binary get. Yes, I think that's a very good point. When it's medically relevant and you need that information, certainly can ask. And, you know, just out of my own curiosity off the top of my head, is there certain phrasing that you guys like using in terms of asking those questions to preface, to say like, 
there's a medical reason I'm asking this so that it doesn't, doesn't come across. Like it's just your own curiosity that you're asking this because I think it's helpful for that person to know for anything. Right. I think something that comes up, that's kind of similar would be like, you know, we're so used to asking, um, you know, are you related to your part? Right. My prenatal brain is like, what, what's something similar? Um, are you related to your partner? consanguinity, right? And some people are like, why are you asking me this? And I'm like, I ask every single patient this, right? So that's something that I like preface when I'm going into pedigrees, which we're going to get into very soon. Um, so is there anything that you guys use in terms of phrasing to preface that? So Joanna might be able to speak to this a little bit more, um, but things like, you know, it, it may be relevant to your cancer risk for me to know, are you on hormone therapies? Do you still have your ovaries? Right. I think it's important to be transparent with patients about why you're asking these questions, whether it be purposes for a proper, more appropriate risk assessment to, should we consider, you know, what type of screenings an individuals will have depending on what types of surgery they may have already had or haven't had, um, if they decide to go that route. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's important to be transparent as to why to also create that level of comfort as to, to share that information with the provider as well. Yeah. Yeah. Very good points there. And, and, you know, switching gears a little bit, um, but still a little bit on terminology, many genetic counseling terms, especially in prenatal and cancer, which is why we have you guys on, um, are very gendered. So maternal, paternal, female, male, reproductive cancers. Um, what are alternatives that we can use to be more inclusive in our language? Obviously I'm asking like a very broad question. So wherever your brain goes, when you hear that, well, you can go more. No, no, no. I've been talking. I've been talking a lot, Johnny. You go ahead. I mean, you guys are all fabulous. So I don't mind. <laughs> um, I think it's important to call it by its name. You know, we're talking different organ systems referring to the prostate versus male related organ or, you know, ovaries, uterus and breast. Even when we're discussing hormones, say estrogen and testosterone, don't say female related versus male related. Um, taking away the gender from it, the name itself and actually calling it what it is, even with like a prenatal perspective, sperm and egg even. So, yeah. Right. In a, in a prenatal pedigree, you know, even just talking about, you know, recessive conditions. Okay. We have two copies of each of these genes. One comes from the egg, one comes from the sperm. You don't have to say one comes from mom and one comes from dad, right? Just one comes from the egg, one comes from the sperm. And it's more and, accurate to say that too. Right? <laughs> exactly. And Definitely. then taking a pedigree, you can say, okay, do you have any siblings? You don't have to say, do you have brothers or sisters, right? Siblings works just fine. And then you can ask, what are their genders? Okay, you have one sister and one brother. Does your sister have any children? You don't need to say, do you have nieces or nephews, right? They're, the generalized terms are there. You don't have to say aunts, uncles, right? Okay, does your mom have siblings? Right. So it's just a very, very subtle language shift, which for people who are in genetic counseling, who tend to be very, very cognizant of our language choices to begin with, that shouldn't be tricky to just kind of flip that switch a little bit. And with and it, all oh, of, sorry. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say off of what Marnie said, and you can go hold on, go, go, go. I was also going to go off of what Marnie said. I'll say it really quick. Basically, uh, the only thing I'll also add to everything everyone said has been great. Um, is that when you're talking about organ specific things, uh, especially when you're talking about the person who's in the room with you, 
checking in to see what kinds of names they like their organs to be called. Um, a lot of trans people do not like to refer to their organs by the names that they're scientifically assigned or colloquially assigned uh, because of a dysphoria that comes along with it. Personally, I am all for the scientific names of how things are going. I know what I've got. I'm perfectly comfortable with it. Um, but for some folks saying, you know, can you talk to me a little bit more about how you'd like to have your your uh, reproductive organs, you know, referred to, and then writing those down and using those as you talk about it, if it's around the person who's in the room. So if you're talking about, let's say like a cervical cancer, for example, like if there's another name for their cervix, that's the time to check in before you have that conversation. What I want I thank you for saying that actually hold, hold on, I appreciate it. Um, what I wanted to add though, too, as well with what Martin says, from a cancer perspective, I would say, depending on like the indication as to why the patient's being seen, I think sometimes we do have to ask, you know, how many individuals in the family were assigned female at birth, um, just to help with that risk assessment overall. But I think that's where the transparency and honesty with your patients as to why these questions are being asked, why the pedigree is being constructed and it, it comes into play to help provide that assessment altogether. That's all I wanted to add. Yeah, I definitely echo all of these thoughts. I think it's really important as Holden brought up too, to mimic what the patient is saying for everything, right? So I think we do that anyway. If someone says the pregnancy, I'm kind of like the pregnancy. If they say my baby, then I'll start saying baby. So like, to me, as I said, like I have all these terms in my head and once a patient says something, I unlock it in my brain. And I'm like, okay, now this is in my vocabulary with this patient, which can be tricky because sometimes we're going from patient to patient and we're kind of like, we get into our groove. But I think it's important to take a step back. And I hope people listening to this webinar, they are taking this in. Like, this is how I'm going to change my practice. That's why we're talking about all of this, right? So I think that's really important to mimic when it comes to pronouns, terms. If they're calling themselves like mom or dad, like affirming that, right? Holden of saying like, okay, they're using this term. I want to start using that term for them. So it's really important to be paying attention during these conversations so that you're able to do that. Um, and I think something else that comes up for me a lot is AMA, right? We used to say geriatric pregnancy. We're getting a little bit better advanced maternal age, but to be honest, I never use the term with patients. Yes. I check off the box with certain testing and everything insurance reasons. Right. But I just say age-related risk. Oh, you're going to be 36 at delivery. This is the risk or the chance. I like using chance, the chance of having a pregnancy affected by down syndrome based on your age you know, or based on when, when the egg was retrieved, if it's a donor or they had their egg retrieved earlier. So I think it's using very neutral terms when we can until a patient says something otherwise. And we're like, oh, great. They're using this language and such a great way to build rapport. Um, I think a lot of us have, you know, from when we started in grad school onwards, learning that the pedigree is such a time to be building rapport with your patient because the patient is the expert and you are learning from them. So I find that's such a great time for they're telling you about their lives and possibly really hard things. A parent has died, sibling has died, whatever the case may be. So, and collecting family history is a part of nearly, if not all genetic counseling sessions, especially when we're first meeting with a patient. So something that I've been thinking about is how can we be more transparent with patients during pedigree building or as we're starting to, how can we make this an opportunity to build rapport? Is there anything else that you guys would add to the list? I think going off of what uh, Joanna said previously, it's just 
being transparent from the beginning about why you're doing this, right? Where I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions about family history from a prenatal perspective. It's I, I usually tell people it's to make sure that there's nothing else that we need to be talking about, right? Um, and let them know that you're going to be asking a lot of questions about family members. And if they're ever not okay with answering a question, they just need to let you know that. And then you kind of roll from there. Exactly. And it's creating that comfort level with your patient altogether. I definitely during the session and whomever's in the room as well too, although our patient is our main focus in the room, but um, you know, let I, I do telehealth. So I do often like share the screen with my patients as I'm doing the pedigree, just so they're aware. And I explain to them different shapes that we use when doing the pedigree even. And when I was in person with sessions, I would even review that with the patient as well, just so they're aware and see it because they'll see it themselves when they get a copy. So it's like just explaining what these represent um, in the language of genetics and taking a pedigree. Getting onto pedigree symbols, a little bit piggybacking off of that. Um, I believe it's still in final discussions what the official nomenclature is going to be, but it looks like what's currently decided on is that you use the symbol for whatever the individual's gender is. If they mm -hmm. are a trans man, you are going to use a square and you may write AFAB, assigned female at birth, or AIAB, assigned intersex at birth, underneath that, but you're going to use the symbol for whatever the person's gender actually is. And just like typical for pedigrees, it's a square if they're male, it's a circle if they're female, and it's a diamond if they're non-binary. Which I think is a natural step because when we do not know someone's gender, we use a diamond. So it it feels natural to have that now be also used for people that are non-binary. And also um, in uh, the last episode of DNA Today, we talked with um, phenotypes people and we were talking with um, Erica Peacock. And one of the things she mentioned was that use the one that they feel most comfortable with. You can ask like, you know, this is what we use. What do you feel comfortable with me drawing? What would you like for me to draw? And I think that's also such an opportunity to build rapport and be affirming in that way. Um, so I think that's just, you know, a good part. And, and as we've mentioned, we've mentioned like assigned sex at birth. Um, and we've mentioned why that can be important to know in terms of cancer risk, also prenatal risk in terms of, okay, could someone be a fragile X carrier, right? Um, so I think that's, it's, we've explained why it's important, but what's the most trans affirming way to ask for someone's assigned sex at birth? I'm gonna make a really short answer to this one. Just ask and ask everybody. Getting back to what Holden said earlier, don't just ask people that you think might be trans or non-binary, just ask everybody. Standard of practice. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point there. And, you know, looking at it from, you know, a more global perspective, how can we best recognize gender diversity in creating patient pedigrees in terms of this? Anything else to add as we've been talking about this in terms of trans folks, non-binary folks, anything else we want to mention? I think one big thing too, it just in all of that, and I know it complicates y'all's creation on your side a little bit, and I'm not a genetic counselor, so I can't speak to how much it would impact everything, but something I've heard talked about a lot recently is that 
most people have not had a genetic panel done, right? Period. And so like them being assigned female at birth or assigned male at birth is exclusively based off of their genitalia. It also may not indicate like a chromosomal makeup necessarily. Like plenty of people are intersex. There was a whole issue with that um, originally with sports, which is like things that are coming back into the news now, right? Um, but about how if you did a panel on a lot of people, people might learn that they're intersex way later on just because, you know, their sex characteristics don't necessarily reflect that. Um, and so just acknowledging that like you're not necessarily writing XX and that's not for gender diversity, that's just sex diversity in general um, and being an affirming uh, practitioner comes down to recognizing that like, we don't always know that just because someone was assigned something at birth that their uh, biological makeup internally would look that way on paper. Yeah, fantastic point to bring up because when I see someone writes like 46XX, 46XY, I'm like, oh, they had a karyotype done and and it was this, right? Because I come from a cytogenetics background where I used to do karyotypes in the lab. So yeah, to me, I'm like, that is confusing. Like, unless they actually did a karyotype, great, write that down. But if they didn't, that is confusing. You don't want to write information that you don't know. You don't want to make the assumption. Oh, sorry, we're yes. gonna morning. Oh, yeah, I was gonna say the same thing. It's, I mean, it's not just confusing; it's flat out inaccurate. Like you don't know that person's chromosomal makeup unless they have been karyotyped. So it shouldn't be on that pedigree unless they've been karyotyped. Agreed. Yeah, you would never write like, oh, they have negative carrier screening if they didn't have carrier screening yet, right? It's like, oh, I'm sorry, do you have a crystal ball? Do you have like a lab in your mind? Like, how is that working, right? Um, so yeah, I think that's that's good. And I just wanted to mention because Phenotips is our sponsor that. The Phenotypes Pedigree Builder is fantastic. It has so many inclusive tools for the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, Their comment section is really easy to use for pronouns. So like as I'm going through, especially in the prenatal realm using, like if I find out their partner's pronouns, like I'll jot them down, um, which is really great. And, you know, it has tools so that um, trans individuals can be represented by the symbol that matches their gender. And it's always... Uh, supported same gender partnerships, which we haven't really gotten into yet. Um, But just to mention that, you know, if you're like, okay, I want to do all these things, but the pedigree builder I'm using doesn't have these tools, just switch over to phenotypes, honestly. Um, So yes, Holden. Um, So yeah, I wanted to jump into kind of, I know we've been talking like prenatal cancer, we bounce around a little bit. Um, So I figured we could go into specifics a little bit. So Holden, I would love to start with you, which I realize you're probably typing as I'm asking you this, but um, what is some feedback advice that you have for OBGYN practices to provide gender affirming care? I know we've hinted at this a little bit and you've mentioned some things. Are there any other experiences you haven't mentioned yet, positive, negative, whatever you feel comfortable sharing with us that our audience can learn from, especially coming from like the provider end, like as a prenatal genetic counselor, I work at an OBGYN. Um, so I'm working directly with the OB, directly with the GYN. Um, anything that you would mention for us to be aware of and, and maybe change our practice? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'll go kind of in chronological order when the patient slash me walks in the door. Um, the biggest issue I've seen with otherwise totally trans-affirming practices are the folks or nurses or techs who will come out and just call the name of the person waiting in the waiting room to come into the back. Um, so often they're so used to saying Miss blah, 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 um, like Miss last name that 
they don't even look at the first name or any gender marker. They just kind of do it. And that is an awful way to start your way, start your time at a GYN already because for a lot of trans people, it's a, not the most fun experience uh, to be going to such a, often a gendered space where if you go into the waiting room, the majority of the people around you are going to be women. Um, and it can feel really tough. So even just starting with just the last name or just the first name, there's no need. I understand we all want to be kind and cordial, uh, but it doesn't necessarily help anyone. And it's really a tiny thing that can make a big difference in terms of comfort walking into the office, um, just because it doesn't happen as much in other offices where stuff is not necessarily as correlated to sex. Um, and then, you know, I've had a mixture of experiences, positive and negative. I'm obsessed with my current gynecologist, Dr. Rodriguez at UCLA. She is amazing. She's one of the leading uh, like trans affirming GYNs out there. She's incredible. Um, but I've also had moments where people have a really hard time saying things like his uterus, his vagina, um, phrases that they're not used to feeling in their mouth. And I understand that it's not necessarily even the misgender of me, like they're looking at me, they're just so used to that kind of phrasing when talking about certain parts and stuff like that. And I've had that happen many times where I've had totally otherwise like trans affirming, very trans competent providers say things like, you know, her vagina and like not even notice that like they're saying something that is not true for me um, in that moment. And it can, it can really wreck a trans person's entire day. Um, because then you're thinking, do they not see me uh, as a guy? Are they really seeing me as a woman in this space? Um, and I've had that happen several times uh, just because people aren't used to it. Um, even if they're really great about properly gendering people to their face, when it comes to their uh, reproductive organs, it can be really hard for some folks. And so practicing things like his vagina, his cervix, his ovaries, like that's kind of phrasing, even if you're doing it in the mirror by yourself in the bathroom, like all good, that, that's great. Um, and then otherwise, you know, I already mentioned, you know, like things like my gynecologist referring to her trans patients as when her men come in uh, to the office, that's a big one. Um, and just, you know, folks like who are kind of out, I don't know how to describe this, but for trans people, a lot of us are experiencing um, new things that maybe you experienced in adolescence, like as adults. Right. And so like if you're someone we trust, listening and responding with joy with us, if we're sharing, you know, I just got my appointment for top surgery or actually I'm getting my hysterectomy like next week, like it might not be the same as like somebody else sharing that. Um, and so when, I, when I've had folks kind of be like, oh, my goodness, like how are you feeling about that? And then if I tell them I'm excited, they get excited with me. That's a great way to build rapport um, with a patient or client. I'm not sure which terminology y'all use, but Either in one. general, like. I, when I've had folks do things like that, it's been just so wonderful. Um, and just kind of going out of your way to do some extra rapport, especially in OBGYN offices for trans people, it's like a big one, especially because so many trans people I know like have never had a pap smear, for example, because they just don't wanna have to deal with the OBGYN. Um, and they're otherwise fine with doctors, but they just, the whole experience can be so unpleasant more so than not, it's not that everyone loves their pap smears, um, but uh, you know, even more unpleasant than, than just, you know, the procedures themselves. And so um, yeah, just times that folks have just really gone out of their way to make me feel comfortable in the space and really take some extra time with me 
um, while I'm in an OBGYN office has totally changed my perspective about going to the OBGYN. I'm totally comfortable with it now. And I wasn't for a very long time. Thank you so much for sharing your experience. I just so value how open you are. I think it's incredibly valuable for people that are listening. So thank you so much for sharing all of that. And I think it's just so important for us to keep all of this in mind and start. These are very easy things to do, right? You're not telling us, oh, you got to go this, this, and it's super long hours of your time. These are like moments of your day and just changing your approach to people, um, I think is so important. And People are just popping off in the chat. This is great. We have so many questions. Um, I wanted to acknowledge there's a couple people. I'm not going to say names because I don't know if you want your name recorded. Um, but when I mentioned using a diamond for non-binary people, some people, that's not what they want to use. So I definitely want to acknowledge that. Um, there's someone that shared that I had a patient whose child is non-binary and did not like the diamond icon because it's used when we don't know the gender, as I mentioned, we actually decided on a shape together and drew it as a heart. I think that's a great way of doing that. I don't, I don't know. I'll go out on a limb and say, I don't think we necessarily always have to use the proper textbook nomenclature. I think, you know, if we're writing under it more information, I think that's awesome. Um, someone else said, I read about similar feelings towards the diamond and the article considerations in genetic counseling of transgender patients, cultural competencies and altered disease risk profiles. Hopefully we can link to that, um, in the show notes for this episode. Um, and yeah, so fantastic in the chat there. Um, so just wanted to sidebar that for a moment. Um, but also Holden, I wanted to ask you about, I know we've talked before, um, and you told me about the process of freezing your eggs. Is that something you feel comfortable sharing with us and a little bit about who offered you this option, if there was counseling involved and possibly how the insurance worked with that? Yeah, absolutely. So prepare for a ride though, because it's kind of, <laughs> here we go. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about it. And, you know, as Marnie mentioned, like it's not great practice to just like ask trans people about, uh, you know, their experiences with medical stuff or their transition. But if there's someone who you're comfortable asking, if you can ask, I'm always happy to talk about that. For example, even with strangers, it's just a personal thing that I'm totally cool with. And I have friends who are the same way, but basically saying like, is it okay if I ask you some questions about your transition and kind of like how Kira just asked, you know, like, is this something you're comfortable talking about with me right here? Like, that's a great way to start. Just wanted to name that really quick. But basically, um, when I was first starting testosterone, so this would have been like four and a half years ago-ish, uh, they had me sign about a million and five waivers. And one of them, it made me, at the time I was living in Boston, I don't know if it was state regulation, insurance or what, um, but they had me sign something basically saying like, I acknowledge that I was told I, that freezing my eggs is an option um, because you can't freeze your eggs like while you're consistently on testosterone. Um, and I decided like, I don't want this. And at the time I was like, I don't want any biological kids. I plan to adopt. I hope that's the case for any partners I have in the future. Like I'm not worried about it, no biggie. Um, and I didn't think about it for a long time. And then I started to have chronic pelvic pain. Um, and there is some new research coming out about testosterone uh, for trans guys and, and uh, trans masculine non-binary people and how it may lead to pelvic pain. Um, some people are able to uh, kind of mitigate that with certain kinds of IUD. That didn't work for me. Um, and it was really miserable. Um, I was 
in pain almost all the time. And it wasn't worth going off testosterone for me. We didn't even know if that would work. And the research is only now budding. Like at the time that I was experiencing this pain, there was like speculation. And then some research was just beginning. And about the time that the next thing I'm about to say happened, the first paper had come out about it. Um, so they already started having like, okay, we have a little bit of evidence. There's some tie. We don't know what it is exactly, but like we know that there is this thing that is happening where uh, trans folks who are on testosterone are having this chronic pelvic pain. And the one way that seems to have been working for everyone is to have a hysterectomy. Um, and so I read about that online and I talked to my gynecologist about it. And I was like, this pain is awful. Nothing we've tried has worked. Like, what do you think about the hysterectomy? I never planned to carry a kid. Like that sounds like an incredibly dysphoria inducing experience for me. Um, not really my thing. And I had just started dating my uh, girlfriend who I've now been with for a couple of years. Um, but it was like very early on in our relationship, like way more early on than anyone should have to have this conversation. Um, but I basically had to have a conversation with her about like, hey, like I'm thinking of, you know, getting rid of my reproductive organs in a lot of ways. Like, you know, like, do you plan, do you plan to have biological children? Like, is that something that you're hoping for? Um, and she said, actually, yes, it's, it's really important to me. Um, and we had a long conversation about it. And actually, since that time, I've learned a lot about privatized infant adoption and the problems with that and all that stuff. So the idea of having a biological child of my own um, from like my genetic material versus uh, via adoption necessarily is like more of an idea that I'm open to and excited about now, um, considering a lot of like the trauma around adoption and stuff like that. That's very complex for another, for another webinar. Um, but basically I was like, okay, well, I guess I have to, because the reason I brought it up with her is because I had to make the decision about what I was going to do about my eggs, like then, because I couldn't do it after I got my hysterectomy. And so I was like, okay, well, I got to explore my options. She'd already frozen her sperm um, before we started dating. Uh, and I asked my, I, that, that day, like while I was sitting in her bedroom, um, messaged my gynecologist on the portal and was like, what have I got to do to freeze my eggs? Um, because I realized that even, in, you know, it was so early on with her, even if I didn't end up with her, I could end up with someone else for whom it's important. And so like, as long as I could afford it, there was no reason for me not to do it. Um, so once that happened, it became very, very difficult with insurance because um, I had insurance through my university. I was a graduate student at the University of Michigan at the time that this was happening. And I also had secondary insurance through my mom um, and through her employer, which was based out of California. So one was based in Michigan, one was based in California. California has a law that fertility preservation for trans people must be covered by insurance, by any California-based insurance. Michigan, awesome. More states yes. should follow suit. Agreed. But Michigan does not. And that was my primary insurance. And so it became very, very difficult because you can't just go with the secondary insurance for billing. You, if your name's on the insurance, you have to get that first. It was a whole thing. So I initially went to the first person my gynecologist referred me to, who is this amazing transcompetent person. And then I learned I couldn't get it covered if she was going to do it. So like she did an initial ultrasound, saw that like I was way more fertile than they could have expected for someone on testosterone as long as I've been, which was exciting. Um, and I eventually had to like 
finagle through my mom's insurance via an HMO. It was a whole thing via Kaiser. Then they referred, they don't have a clinic. So they had to refer me out to a clinic. But the person who I ultimately ended up working with is the person who kind of counseled me through what was going on. We started with a telehealth appointment while I was in Michigan, um, just kind of talking about like, here's what things would look like. Here are our risks and benefits. Here's how long you'll have to be off. So I had to go off of my hormones. I of course had to go on all these fertility hormones, which everyone has to do if they're doing preservation or IVF. Um, and uh, so I, I kind of just started there and it ultimately was a couple month long process of me going off of my hormones, then going to California because I had to do it there. Um, and I had to time it well too with when my hysterectomy was going to be um, and then uh, going through the process with them. And then in terms of insurance, so my primary insurance did not cover anything. My secondary insurance did cover all of it. And it's also the law in California that the first year of preservation is free. Um, so like they, they're supposed the to cover storage first, fees, right? the storage fee, um, but it's been a nightmare trying to get them to reimburse me for it. I, it's years later now, and I still haven't been able to successfully get that, um, which like, it's not the end of the world because they were able to, I was saving so much money. Like I only, I spent, I think under a thousand dollars total from like several months worth of, you know, I was at that office all the time. Um, for several weeks and then like months and more of telehealth appointments, et cetera. And so um, insurance covered all of that, all of the appointments and the procedure itself. But then I did have to submit a claim myself uh, to be reimbursed for the first year storage. And I still haven't gotten that. And it's just been wild. But in theory, insurance is meant to cover in the state of California uh, that year. Otherwise, insurance covered totally minus, you know, co-pays, co-insurance, et cetera. Um, everything for the appointments and the procedure itself of the actual removal of the eggs. Um, and then after that, uh, I was able to get my hysterectomy as I'd liked. So that was the very, very long story of yeah. how that happened. But effectively, I did end up talking to a lot of medical professionals and my counseling around it started before I even went on testosterone. It's only that I revisited it once I was in this serious relationship and was experiencing chronic pelvic pain. Right. So kind of a mix is what helped with insurance, but even that a mess, uh, just so much in such a long process to go through regardless of insurance. Right. So just, you know, finding the right place going through and, and bringing up that you were off testosterone and then on fertility meds. So that can also, you know, be quite a challenge. I imagine as you were mentioning, well, I mean, it's a challenge for anybody, right? Cause like hormones screw with your emotions, no matter who you are and what you're doing, let alone the idea of not only being off of your gender affirming hormones, but being on something that is actively feminizing you as a trans guy is like really hard. And then the worst part was at the end where I got a period for the first time in years. Oh. Um, and it's, it's required before I can go back on the testosterone. It was like something that like the doctor knew was going to be hard for me, but like he talked me through it. Right. And that was really emotionally difficult for me because I had gone so many years without having to worry about that um, while being on testosterone. And then suddenly it was a new issue again. Um, and I was really lucky to have such a strong support system throughout all of that, but it definitely was a much more emotionally difficult process than I think it probably is for cis people, though I, I can't know for sure. Yeah, I think it's it's so valuable to just know your perspective with this. Marnie, I'd love for you to jump in. So one thing also that people might not be aware of is in the US, testosterone is a controlled substance. 
So even obtaining wow. obtaining testosterone if you are transmasculine is a job and a half in itself. And the ways in which it can be delivered into your body are what I'm going to call not ideal, right? Um, there are, you can do injections, you can do transdermal, which is essentially showering and then covering your entire body with a testosterone cream. But if that's the way that you go, you then can't touch your partner unless they are somebody who's also okay with getting transdermal testosterone. Just the, there need to be better options for people who are transmasculine to actually obtain their hormones. Yeah, certainly. I didn't, I didn't know that. That's really interesting to learn and be aware of. Um, we have so many questions, so I want to jump into it. Maybe we could do like a rapid fire so we can answer as many as possible. Um, some we've already answered, so I'm going to be skipping those. Um, but one, um, asked, I really liked the comments about how to talk to a patient about names on test reports. How can we address a situation when a test result might be dependent on a test a result range that might differ based on biological sex that doesn't match a patient's gender. So I could see this applying to prenatal and cancer. Um, any gut reactions to this? The biggest thing is it's so easy to just add something onto a PDF that says gender and sex. Like if you really needed to send it in with a certain thing so that it gets coded a certain way for the system of the lab or whatever it is for y'all, it's really easy to when the results come back, just edit or add. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to submit something in a way that's not going to get the patient their proper stuff, but also to know that it gets more complicated when you're like me and you've changed your uh, legal gender marker, because sometimes people will send like sex specific labs uh, out and then insurance won't cover it because they say like, oh, well, why would you be sending out a female thing on our records that says this is a male? Um, and so it's always best to indicate, you know, sex, gender, and then like sex or gender for insurance um, are always like different categories to, to look at because it's not necessarily only about like being affirming. It's sometimes like a monetary and technical issue with insurance. Yeah. Good to just submit all the information. Marnie, you have something to add there? Some, some laboratories, especially genetic testing laboratories are actually making those separate fields now on their requisition. Like there, will be, one, there will be one field for gender. There will be another one for sex assigned at birth. Right. Okay. And, and, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so our next question, what about where biological sex might influence risk assessment or recommendations on models of risk assessment to use? Oh, someone asked a question. Now I've lost it. Um, how in cancer counseling, do we ask about pedigree to account for these issues? Um, I, I kind of earlier, what I said, you know, it's important when you're going through the pedigree with the patient to explain why you would need to collect it. And obviously you can, you can document as we were alluding to earlier, you know, what the individual and the, or the family member identifies at, as from their, with their gender, but as well as document underneath what their actual sex may be assigned at birth. Um, and that within itself can help, you know, with regarding to, you know, needing to know the number of females, let's say for breast cancer risk overall, if there was, um, you know, an individual in the family who had had children, you know, we would need to know, did they have females or not? So, I mean, it's just being transparent, asking as to why you would need to collect this information. Yep. So we can identify who in the family may 
be eligible for testing, needing to do testing. Yeah. But, I mean, but also it could change as the person was saying, it can certainly change the risk model to see if the individual in front of us would qualify for certain um, imaging. Yes, stream. all comes back to insurance, certainly. And, and we're all, we're all U.S. based, right? So I also want to mention that a oh. lot of what we've been talking about is the U.S. healthcare system, because um, we have a lot of people tuning in from the U.K. and Canada. Oh, okay. um, our next question, do U.S. providers freely take notes on gender and gender specific roles? Example, mom, dad, in your patient charts. As an incoming genetic counseling student, I think I would want to, but wondering if there are any considerations to make about what is appropriate to know in a chart specifically. So not necessarily just what we're saying to patients, but what we actually end up writing in patient letters that go to doctors. Um, is that anything you guys include? I typically don't. I make a note for myself, but not for other providers. The only time I would ever note it in a chart is if it was relevant to the situation. Like, for example, a patient who's doing um, setup for PGT where I need to coordinate testing for their biological parents. And in that circumstance, I'm going to call them whatever terminology the patient has used. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, rapid fire. Here we go. How can we provide affirming care to transgender youth who may need to receive cancer genetic counseling due to a family history? How do we ensure that our practices aren't seen as a barrier to gender affirming care, such as hormone replacement therapy, if there is a positive result? Which is also kind of a question I had too, if someone comes in that um, say they have like a pathogenic variant and a BRCA gene, right? Something like that. Um, and you know that may make them eligible for a bilateral mastectomy. Um, would love to, to hear your perspective, Joanna. Yeah. I think it goes back to like shared decision-making and having these open conversations with patients. And if, if, if the individuals under the age, if a parent's involved with the conversation as well, um, yes, traditionally we would, you know, recommend, um, individuals waiting until they reach that adult age to pursue testing because technically they, these are more adult related cancer risks. Um, but I, you know, and, and maybe this is me going rogue. I have made exceptions where I've tested individuals who are younger because they are seeking to obtain, you know, or going through, you know, the, their gender affirming procedures or surgeries themselves that if it helps them eventually, you know, be at ease with themselves, then yes, I'm, I will do the testing. I'm not sure if that's the actual question that was being asked, but, you know, yeah. just having, I would say just having that dialogue and conversation with patients about it. And if, if it's, if it, and if it, typically children or individuals are at an age that they can make that decision as well with their parents, mm -hmm. um, you know, and like it's like assent versus it, consent, it, it, consent exactly, from the exactly, parents, exactly. assent from if they're 15, 16, and, and they're at a point where you can tell um, mental health wise and like, exactly. you know, just their intellect and everything. Like, are they at a maturity level? Maybe that's the better term Ex maturity exactly. level to say I'm part of this conversation. Exactly. Um, are there um, any, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, can Arnie. I just tag onto yes. that very quickly and just say, unfortunately, that's a situation where a number of us in the U S need to be very cautious, given the fact that gender affirming care for minors is being criminalized in a number of States. Very good so, to bring up very, very timely right point. now. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's definitely a consideration and, and things are rapidly changing with that as well as we see new laws and everything. Um, going off that a little bit too, is there anything that we should have it as a consideration for people that are on hormone replacement therapy? If I'm using the correct term, please correct me. Um, if people are on hormones, 
is there a higher risk of certain cancers? Like we look at, you know, hormones, cancer, like to me, there's, there's associations there. Um, am I on the right track? Is there anything that we should consider? There's limited research. I will say in this area of work, um, a lot of it is more centered on hormone therapy, individuals taking hormones, being cisgender. Um, it's unclear. I would say as an example, you know, if a transgender woman were to have a, a BRCA mutation and them taking estrogen, you know, if we don't know necessarily if the long-term effects would actually impact and affect their cancer risk and, you know, other factors, like when did they start taking the therapy to the total length of exposure to estrogen? That's still something that we don't know how much of a role it plays in regard to cancer risk in general. Would Which love to see more research is on that. Exactly. Yep. We need exactly. more research studies. Yeah. You go to PubMed and you're like, okay, pretty much coming up empty here. We need more there. Mm-hmm. Um, our next question, could you speak more about using scientific names for organs? What about those patients who don't know scientific terms? English as a second language, non-science trained, lower intelligence, or, you know, different factors, different walks of life, right? Using scientific names used to be something we tried to avoid Okay. True. Of like trying to speak, figuring out where patients languages and matching that. So we've kind of talked about that. Um, I imagine this might come up, especially via telehealth when it's harder to read someone's understanding. Any, any thoughts on this kind of using scientific names? Yeah. I think a big thing is, first of all, you don't always want to use scientific names. You want to start by saying, you know, tell me a little bit about how you refer to your reproductive organs. And if they're love that question, lock that into your brain, people. (laughs) And if you're not, if they're not even sure what reproductive organs are, that's where you pull out your handy dandy picture chart being like, tell me what you call this. And if they really don't know, or it seems like it's not important to them, then just go with whatever you want to call them or whatever you usually call them. But for a lot of trans people, they're going to know trans people overall are a lot more aware of their bodies and their biological makeup than cis people are just because it's put into question all the time. We're thinking about it all the time. I don't know any trans person, even who's fairly undereducated, who doesn't have some kind of feeling about their like reproductive organs, whether it's like, oh, I'm chill with them. This is what I call them or that they call them something else. And you mentioned language is an issue. It looks like there's a couple people who uh, asked about, you know, language and like when there's a either a language barrier or differentiating in terms of like, maybe it's not English at all. Right. Um, that's something that it's also just good to ask, like how the person refers to it, uh, because assuming that it's going to be touchy is also a microaggression, right? What you want to just go with is working with like, how do you feel about this? How do you talk about this? And just let the person tell you. Um, because when, when there have been doctors who refer to my vagina as my front hole, I'm like, well, that's not what I call it. And that sounds very like clunky to me. And I understand for a lot of trans people, like that's their, you know, preference to have that called that. But for me, I'm like, just call it my vagina. Like I know what's down there. Right. Um, and so I think the reality is just like constantly having open dialogue with your patients, um, about what they use and then pulling out a chart or diagram if need be. Yeah. And I think you were also kind of hinting at the, um, question in the chat too, asking like, you know, we've been talking about using English, but certainly other languages can be harder to use gender neutral terms or inclusive, like French, Spanish, certainly things that, um, you know, have, have come up for me. And even when I'm, I don't speak those languages. So when I'm using an interpreter, sometimes with Spanish, I can kind of understand, um, and follow along and other times I'm lost. Um, so it's certainly hard. Like, I'm like, how are they translating this, um, or interpreting this, I should say. So I think that that definitely is hard. Any, you know, thoughts on how we can do that in terms of other languages, Marnie? 
So first off, there are some languages where conversations are going on about non-gendered words. I know it's occurring in Spanish. I know it's occurring in Hebrew. I'm not sure about French. I think that was the question in the chat. Um, but I think one of the things that Holden said previously was ask, ask the patient. The patient knows what language they're communicating in. Ask them which, which one that they would prefer that you use. Yeah, I think a big theme of what we've been talking about is don't make assumptions and just ask, um, especially when you need to know from a medical standpoint or how to continue your conversation, how you're referring things, terminology, just ask and don't assume. I think that's something that, you know, I haven't really talked about my experience, but going to like a GYN for me, you know, they ask like, oh, like, are you, you know, oh, your boyfriend, husband, are you on birth control? I'm like, okay, none of that applies to me. Right. <laughs> so it's like, you know, also if you looked at the form, you would have seen that I checked off that I'm queer. Um, so I think that's something where I'm like, okay, clearly you didn't work, look at the paperwork or you're just assuming because, you know, I appear very feminine that I'm straight. And it's like, just stop making assumptions in general for everybody. Um, Next question. How do you work with patients who become confused, defensive, or angry about questions that are gender affirming without breaking rapport or providing an entire lesson on terminology, gender affirming topics? Um, an example of that, that I can think of is when I do ask someone's pronouns, they're like, what do you mean? Like, why are you asking that? Of course it's this. How do you guys respond in situations like these? I would say calmly, right? Just if somebody, if somebody gets defensive about it, you just tell them, these are questions that I ask everybody because I don't want to assume. Thank you for letting me know. Let's move on. Yeah. I, I agree with Marnie. I say, I, I, I try not to make assumptions. So that's why I ask. Yeah. Short and sweet to the point. Move exactly. on. Exactly. <laughs> just roll out, roll, roll with it after. Yeah. And if you have it on an intake form, you don't even have to worry about it. Right. Yes. And yeah, that's true too. On yeah. intake forms, who will just skip the question. Like I, I've worked in most, you know, I'm very publicly out as trans, but I don't lead with that information when I'm working with clients or stuff like that. It's, if they want to know, they find out. Um, and uh, there are folks who like, you'll put that field there and they'll just leave it blank. And most of the time, that's usually a pretty good indicator that they think it's a ridiculous question. Yeah. Um, and so from that, you know, you just got to do what you got to do. But also there are very few moments in which you're going to be using your patient's pronouns like while in the session with them uh, because like you're talking to them, not about them. So that's just also something to note is like, you know, having it's important for when you speak about them in the third person, but for the most part, you're not going to be talking like it's not going to necessarily come up in conversation about their specific pronouns if it's not like a family member or something like that because you're talking to them and there's no reason to speak to the third person. Yeah. I will admit or just add to that too that reason why I also ask because of just documentation like I do want to make sure that my note reflects what they per, what they identify as as well so just adding to that like when I'm writing my notes I want to make sure that it's in accordance to what they want. Yeah, certainly. And we're going to go over a couple minutes because you guys oh, are fantastic. Sorry. And there's just, no, not at all. So if people have to log off, we totally understand. Um, but I just want to include a couple more questions. Um, obviously I'm very passionate about this and, and want to continue talking about it. I wish we had like three hours, honestly. Um, so one of the big questions that I wanted to kind of wrap up with is that you know, throughout our conversation, we've talked about what we can do as healthcare providers to take steps to be not only inclusive, but affirming, right, with gender. So 
what are some other steps that genetic counselors and genetic healthcare providers can take now to do that? I think, you know, to start off answering, you know, we've talked about lab forms, addressing that um, intake forms. This is something that I recently did at my practice. I went through with a red pen and I'm like, this is what we need to change. And certain things that I was like, I'm a little offended by this. So like, I think we should maybe change this asking for pronouns. Um, also for me asking for a partner's pronouns helpful to have on the form. So I just know ahead of time. Um, so I think one thing that also when Holden and I, um, a few months ago, were doing our role play, something that Holden pointed out for me to work on is that some of my visual aids said, I think it was like normal female. I don't know if you remember this Holden on a karyotype bunch of chromosomes. And I was like, wow, I didn't even realized that until I did this session with Holden, that was like, you know, a practice. And so since then I've updated them, um, to reflect that and be more inclusive with that. Um, so those are some things that I've been doing more recently. Um, anything that you guys would add to that list? I'm going to say, put your pronouns on things, put it in your Facebook and your Twitter and your Instagram handles, put it on your Zoom handle, include your own pronouns, right? Mm -hmm. Don't, don't, if you are, if you are cis, don't have your patient assume your pronouns because no that, assumptions. that's no assumptions, a, that's a, yeah. that's a microaggression in itself. Um, and in the prenatal world, talk to your colleagues and see if you can get the word women out of it. Women's health department is not a thing that is actually accurate, right? Nope. Um, pregnant women isn't as accurate as pregnant people. So, Change your language that you're using in practice as Holden brought up earlier, like go in the mirror and be like pregnant people, pregnant people. Like I use that all the time. And sometimes when I'm explaining my job to like, you know, just people at a party or something, I say pregnant people, like I see a little quizzical look and I'm like, yeah, get used to it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Anything think, else to add? Go ahead. Yeah. I, I think one big thing is, you know, it's always great to have a little pride flag or trans flag, like little sticker in the window or whatever it is. But the, the one caveat I will add to that is that you got to earn it. Right. I've seen plenty of places that just put that there and they're like, we're being great. Like, great. We, we bought so the sticker, stick it on. We're all set. No, exactly. <laughs> Unless you've talked to every staff member in your office, including the custodians, including everyone who may interact with a patient and make sure that they achieve at least basic competency, putting the flag there or a sticker there or the everyone is welcome here, whatever sticker is not really true uh, unless you do that work. And so I've seen plenty of places just throw the sticker up there in the window. And I'm not a believer in that. I think that if you're going to do that, you have to have an office that reflects that. So mm -hmm. do the stickers or the signs or the flags or whatever, the posters, but make sure that it actually reflects the reality of your practice. And if it doesn't yet work on it so that it can. Yeah. I think that's a great point. And back, I don't, because I'm a private practice, we don't have like badges and ID badges, but back when I was a student, um, and I had one, I would wear one that had a flag pin. And then I also wanted to get one that had my pronouns. Um, so that it's just like there. And that way, if I forget to say it, sometimes I'm like in the session and I'm like, did I even say what my name is? Right. <laughs> Let alone pronouns. So, you know, sometimes we're just moving and grooving. And I think that can also be helpful. Um, and really cool. If you can find one on Etsy, that's like from someone in our community that's selling them a great way to support their business. Um, but yeah, we have so many recommendations. A lot of them are going to be on the website, which is phenotypes.com, um, certain articles that we've mentioned. So you have a go-to place because your education 
either begins here or is continuing here. So um, certainly this is, you know, we answered as much as we could in, in the time we've had. Um, but thank you for joining us. Thank you to the, our panelists here. I have to say, this is, I'm going to admit, one of my favorite sessions we've had out of the 20 um, you know, tips speaker series that we've had. Obviously, this is a topic that I'm very passionate about as being in the community as well. Um, so we would really like to have your feedback. There's going to be a link in your browser when this webinar ends, and it's going to be emailed to you that way if people have logged out earlier or whatever. Um, you know, we'd really appreciate your feedback. We've had such great engagement with this webinar. So we really want to hear like, what else did you want to hear from? What other topics in the future? Um, so the email will also include a link to the Phenotips speaker series page where you can sign up to really receive alerts on upcoming sessions. So, um, and this is our social media. So you can follow us all on there. Um, again, you can go to phenotips.com, hit the resources tab. And then the speaker series is like the first on the drop down menu. You can tell I go there all the time. <laughs> um, so, you know, we really appreciate you tuning in. Um, it's been a great way to honor and celebrate Pride Month. I really want to thank each of you for joining us and, you know, for all of our panelists for providing your expertise, your perspectives. Um, I have learned so much. And just want to really thank you from the, the bottom of my queer heart for, for doing this with me. Um, so everybody fill out those forms, follow us. Um, and if you're interested in this, um, these genetic conversations, check out dnapodcast.com. You can search DNA Today on your podcast app and check out. We've had almost 190 episodes there. Um, so any closing thoughts as we uh, close out here? Just if thank I could you just... so much for, oh, sorry. Thank you so no, much no, for no. this conversation, Kira, and uh, for bringing us in. I know that as a trans person, it means a lot to have trans representation on these kinds of panels. So often the conversations are had without us. And so I just wanted to say thank you to you and to DNA Today in general and Phenotips for uh, having me um, uh, on this panel, just because, you know, having an actual trans voice in an otherwise often like voiceless world uh, can be really, really great for us. So thank you. So important. Mm -hmm. And I hope it's the beginning of many webinars and recordings and stuff we do together. I just wanted, if I can, to briefly share a comment that I got from my BFF, who is non-binary and transmasculine. Um, they said to me a couple of days ago, you know, the bad thing about being out and trans is you are automatically less safe and your interaction with healthcare becomes so much more complicated. But the good part is you actually get to take pictures of yourself where you have life in your eyes. And I thought about that and I thought, that's not an equation that I'm okay with. Like that's, that's not a trade-off that I want to exist. I think we can do better, we should do better. And if it can't start with genetic counselors who know that there's so much beyond XX and XY, I mean, it really, like if it doesn't start with us, where, where does it start? Mm -hmm. And just to add, you know, our experiences with our patients begin before the patient comes into the room, before they walk into the office. It's important that we educate ourselves and are learning. I learned so much today, even from everyone on this panel that, um, I think it's important to self-reflect on, on oneself, but as well as educate and, and constantly read and learn and, and taking it from there. Yeah. Thank you. Definitely. Well, thank you for those that stuck around for the extra few minutes. It's obviously, we just have so much to say, um, but definitely tune in for the next webinar. Um, thank you for tuning in and helping us celebrate pride. Bye guys.